So I invite your attention with me to another episode in the book of Acts. This will be in Acts 19 this evening, Acts chapter 19. We've been looking at some episodes in the book of Acts. A few weeks ago we looked at Acts chapter 20 and Paul and his friends coming into the city of Troas. Paul being able to help someone come back to life. Who was that person that fell out of that window and Paul brought him back to life? Who was that person? Eutychus. Very good. Last week we were looking at Paul standing before a man who had a wife named Drusilla. What's this man's name? Felix. Good. Last week we looked at Felix and his wife, so-called, and Paul reasoned with them of righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. So this evening I want us to look at Acts 19. This is Paul on his third missionary journey, right in the midst of the third missionary journey. The way I look at the journeys is the first journey, Acts 13 and 14, second journey from Acts 15 to 18, and the third journey from Acts 18 through Acts 21. So here in Acts 19, Paul comes to Ephesus, and he's in the midst of his third uh, missionary journey. Ephesus is known for its idolatry, certainly, but it's also known for its sorcery, its supposed magical arts. And so um, we'll look into some of that uh, this evening. We'll be looking at five or six different sections as we study. We'll be looking specifically at Acts 19, verses 8 through 20. Acts 19, 8 through 20, so if you have your eyes there. And then we will glance around and look at other scriptures that will help us understand what's going on. So as you look at Acts 19, before you get to verse 8, how many men have been baptized here in Ephesus? How many men? As you look back to verses 1 through 7, how many men have been baptized? Twelve men. So our first section is that Paul is coming off twelve baptisms. Paul is coming off twelve baptisms. That's verses 1 through 7. That brings us right to verse 8. So I want to just label this first section as Paul coming off 12 baptisms, chapter 19, verse 8. Now, 12 baptisms is wonderful, but it's just a drop in the bucket. Paul had explained to these men here in Ephesus, they have been associated with John's baptism. And Paul brought them up to date on the importance of being baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And these men were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins. Twelve baptisms is great, but it's just a scratch on the surface. Now Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, 37 and 38, He said, The harvest truly is plenteous, plentiful, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest that he may send forth reapers here into his harvest. 
So Paul had that in mind. Paul knew this very well from his Lord. So he leaves these 12 baptisms and goes into the synagogue here in uh, Ephesus. Let me ask you a few questions. As you look down to verse 8, let me ask you a few questions. How long does Paul stay here teaching in the synagogue? Three months. Three months. And what about the manner of Paul's teaching? How does he teach? What, what words describe how he teaches? Right, well, the first word there, boldly. Boldly. Okay. Boldly. I think the, um, the reference is something like Proverbs 28, verse 1, where it says the, um, the righteous are as bold as a lion. Now the wicked flee when no man pursues. Okay. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. That's what we're striving to be. That's, that's our goal, to be bold like Paul. So the manner of his teaching is boldly. Okay. And you might also notice that the word persuade is in there. It's not just teaching and not just teaching boldly but teaching with persuasion. We're not done when we present the facts of the gospel. We're not done. We must persuade. We must persuade. You might recall this statement as you glance over to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 and then get ready to bounce back to Acts. But if you look over to 2 Corinthians 5, you'll notice it's uh, it's either verse 11 or verse 14. Knowing therefore, 2 Corinthians 5 verse 11, Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. That's, that's what Paul has in mind here. He's going into this synagogue. He's going boldly, not, not with anger, not with, um, not with criticism, you know, but just boldly because his Lord has uh, made known the gospel uh, to him. There is no other way. There's no other truth. Okay. So therefore we must be bold. This is what people need. And it's not just enough to present them the Lord Jesus, but to do some persuading. Persuading. And that means we don't give up. We don't give up. So, looking at verse 8, we see where he goes. He goes to the synagogue. We see how long he's going to be working in the synagogue in Ephesus, about three months. We see that he goes in there and he's boldly speaking the word and he's seeking to persuade people. Now, what's going to be his content? Still looking at verse 8 here. What's the content of his message, according to verse 8? Things concerning the kingdom. All right. Things concerning the kingdom. That's right. Things concerning the kingdom. And we understand from, from other passages that the kingdom here is not something that's in the future. It's not some future occurrence or future happening. But rather, it's referring to the church. Referring to the church. When John the Baptist came on the scene way back in Matthew 3, verse 2, he was preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is near at hand. And then Jesus picked up on that theme, Matthew 4 and 17, that repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus even teaches us that in Matthew 16, 19, that the church is the kingdom of God. 
And it makes very good sense because those in the church are those who have submitted to the reign of Jesus Christ. Okay? We, we, we have surrendered to him. So he's the king and we part, we're part of the kingdom. And Jesus explains in John 3, 3 through 5, that it is through the new birth process, water and the spirit, that one enters into that kingdom. That's part of our surrendering to our Lord's will. Even right here in the book of Acts chapter 1, verse 3, you'll notice that Jesus, in, during that in-between time, the time between Jesus being resurrected from the dead and the time that Jesus actually ascends up on high, during those 40 days that Jesus was still on this earth, he spoke to his disciples about the kingdom of God. Many things about the church. So this is what Paul's speaking of here as he goes into uh, the synagogue here at Ephesus. But notice also, at least in my version here, American Standard Version, it says that Paul's not only speaking about the kingdom in verse 8, it says he is reasoning with people. Reasoning. When you, when you see the word reasoning, what, what comes to your mind? Yeah, discussing. Good. Discussing. What else comes to your mind? Logic. Yeah. Logic. Okay. He's, he's laying out the case for Christianity. That's what he's doing. And that's, that's why he was there three months. You can't do that in one session. You can't do that in two sessions. Where do you get started in laying out the case for Christianity to, to folks who would not know it, who never have heard of it? In fact, to folks who, who have been involved in other religions, the Jewish religion, and never really grasped the idea of Christianity, then where would you start? I wonder where Paul started laying out the case for Christianity among these synagogues of the Jews. Yeah. He's starting the Old Testament. And make his way forward. That's right. And that's why that um, we have, over the last few weeks, we brought out the, uh, the booklets uh, from the Jewel Miller uh, film strips, uh, the old film strips, because Jewel Miller does such a wonderful job of doing that very thing, bringing out the, the uh, events and the passages of the Old Testament that points to the, uh, the Christianity in the New Testament, laying out the case for Christianity, persuading uh, with logic and, um, and scripture. Is reasoning and persuading really reinforces your other point, is Paul could not reason and persuade them about the kingdom that the kingdom was in the church. Because in this life, we do not know anything about Right. And if the kingdom was something in the future, then how could he be persuading them uh, concerning the kingdom? That's a good point. Real good point. Okay. So our first section here is Paul coming off twelve baptisms and coming into the synagogue of the Jews. All right. This is chapter nineteen, verse eight. Now the next section is chapter nineteen, verses nine and ten. And I just want to label this, uh, the atmosphere changes. The atmosphere changes. Because if you look down in your Bible, chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, you'll see that some people become hardened. 
hardened. And then they become disobedient. And then they begin to speak evil of the way. Okay. So we quickly learn that sin never sits still, does it? The idea of sin, the idea of Satan is to dominate us. And it, a lot of times it begins with a hardness of heart. And then it proceeds to disobedience. And then before long, in your disobedience, you become so confident in it that you're willing to speak evil of the truth that you once listened to. Notice the progression of that, of that sin. So the atmosphere is changing here, and Paul has to make a decision. And he makes the decision to leave the synagogue work and go where? Where does he go? To the school of Tyrannus. That's right, Tyrannus. little lecture hall there. And this is an incredible opportunity. That it's definitely God opening up a door. Because Paul is able to go in there every day and just, just teach the Word of God right there in this city of idolatry called Ephesus. What a great opportunity. And he goes in there on a daily basis. On a daily basis. It's just really uh, wonderful that he's able to have this opportunity. Hold your Bibles there and run over to 1 Corinthians 16 for a second. Many believe that, um, and it seems reasonable, that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians from his stay here in Ephesus. And notice this, from, from 1 Corinthians 16, verses 7, starting verse 7. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 7 he says, For I do not wish to see you now by this way, by the way, for I hope to tarry a while with you if the Lord permits. But I will tarry here at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great door and effectual door is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. Now that describes Ephesus perfectly. Both of those things are happening. There are many adversaries to Christianity, but also he has a great opportunity here. He's been able to go into the synagogues. Now he's got this school of Tyrannus that he's able to go into. But he had to make that decision to leave those folks there at the, at the synagogue. Remember Jesus talked about Matthew 7, verse 6. And it's a very hard command to obey. But he talked about dogs and hogs. What did he say in Matthew 7, verse 6? Don't cast your pearls before swine and give not that which is holy unto the dogs. And that's what Paul's having to do here. He's in the synagogues, but they, the atmosphere changes and he has to make the decision to, to get out of that place. And it was a good decision because he was able to see the Word of God be more respected and more received, uh, received as he goes into this school every day. And for how long does he get to teach in this school? Notice in your Bible there. How long does he get to teach in this school? Two years. Two years. This is enormous in this day of spreading the gospel. So a great door uh, indeed was open to 
Paul on this occasion. So we see here that the atmosphere changes on him, but he goes into this school, and so through this effort, all Asia is able to hear the gospel. That is, most likely this is the time when, when the congregation in Laodicea, if you look at your Bible maps, you look at and you'll find Laodicea and you'll see Colossae and other This is most likely the time when, when the gospel went into these parts of, of the world and congregations were uh, established. But we also see here that Paul didn't do this by himself. We always need to remember this is a, this is a historical record. Historical records can never name every detail. Certainly all of this is not happening the word cannot get out to these places except that other preachers and other servants are helping all this to, to occur while Paul is daily there in the school of Tyrannus. Alright. So that brings us to chapter 19. That's verses 9 and 10. And then the next section will be chapter 19 and verses 11 and 12. And this is the miracle section. Miracles of an unusual sort. Okay. I don't know. Um, except that we had girls growing up, I probably would have never watched this movie, but I ended up watching this movie more than once. The Princess Bride. Yeah. And so Wesley and Buttercup uh, had to uh, encounter some rodents of unusual size. R-O-D... R-O-D... R-O-U-S's, that's right, rodents of unusual size, R-O-U-S's. These are miracles of an unusual sort right here because notice what happens in verses 11 and 12. First, there's miracles. Why do these men like Paul and like Philip, and go back to Acts 8, Philip is able to, why are they able to do miracles as they go and preach? What's the, what's the background to that? That's right. To confirm the work. Okay. In the days prior to the completion of the New Testament, the word would need to be confirmed by heaven. And that's what these miracles were about. The reference on that is Mark chapter 16 and verse 20, where, where that's uh, explained to us as Jesus promises that these messengers would have the ability to do a lot of uh, unusual things. Um, drink deadly poison, pick up poisonous snakes, cast out demons, and other miraculous things. Those things do not exist today because the word has been confirmed. We are thankful to have God's completed word uh, now. For another reference on that, 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13, talks about how that when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. The in part things, the different messages that were preached and taught and confirmed by miracles, all that was done away once the perfect law of liberty, James 1 verse 25, once the perfect law of liberty came and was established, then by the process of time, um, the word was confirmed. But notice the unusual sort. What's unusual about these miracles as you look down to verses 11 and 12? What's, what's unusual about this? Yeah, they, um, they took cloth 
handkerchiefs from Paul to various places, and it was able those the very presence of those uh, cloths caused diseases to leave people's bodies, caused spirits, demons to come out of people's uh, lives, out of their bodies. Just an incredible thing to think about. Isn't that amazing to think about? Um, so, Dr. Fletcher here has somebody walk in and got several problems. And Dr. Fletcher reaches into his pocket. He says, here, try this. And I say, what is this? This is a, this is a handkerchief from Larry Little. And you just hold this right here, and your problems will be solved. Isn't it amazing to think about that this was happening? And on a, the original language here is, it's like an assembly line of cloths going out continually from Paul and being taken in every different uh, direction. It's having a tremendous impact on the spread of the gospel in this city. No wonder Paul said, a great door is opened uh, here. And this connection to Jesus, if you want to run back with me to Luke uh, chapter 8, I believe it is. This connects. This kind of thing connects Paul right to uh, Jesus. Remember, you look at Luke 8, 44. Um, this woman who had an issue of blood came behind him. Luke 8, 44. Luke 8, 44. Uh, she came behind Jesus and touched the border of his garment, and immediately the issue of her blood uh, stopped. And Jesus said, Who is it that touched me? And when all denied, Peter said, uh, Master, the multitudes are pressing upon you, crushing you. And Jesus said, Well, someone did touch me, for I perceived that power had gone out uh, from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came forth trembling and falling down before him, declared uh, in the presence of all the people for what, uh, for what uh, caused her to touch him and how she was healed immediately. So that's what was happening to these folks in, in a sort of similar way. So notice here in verses 11 and 12 the unusual miracles that were taking place and how that people received uh, healing from Paul's just as this is mere cloth. Now, the next session is the next, I think the next uh, two verses, verses 13 and 14. And the thought here is that um, there, really it's hostile witnesses step forward. Because if you needed someone to say, to step forward and say, okay, these miracles really were happening. Then we have these seven sons of Sceva who step forward and they claim that they themselves walk around having the ability to cast out demons. And so they step forward and they come to one person who is possessed with a demon and they use the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I adjure you to come out, come out. The very fact that they are trying to duplicate what Paul and others are doing uh, shows that these miracles are real, or else they would not be trying to do them themselves. Okay, so I call this verses 13 and 14 just a hostile witness. In other words, these men, the seven sons of Sceva, uh, they have no association. They're not on Paul's team. They're not for Christianity. 
Okay, they're still very much uh, involved in the, in the old Judaism, the old Jewish religion. But by the very fact that they're trying to do what Paul did, use the words that Paul used, shows that they knew that Paul was the real thing. Paul was doing the real thing. And isn't it curious how that these men thought, well, just by, just by saying the words, just by saying the words, that the, um, the expulsion of the demon would occur. Just by saying the words. Why do men think that? Men still, we still go in that direction by just saying the words. Just saying the words. Somehow they just thought, well, if I just say that, that's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, in the name of Jesus, come out. If I just say those words. But you've got to remember, these folks, a lot of them are enmeshed in this sorcery business. Incantations, the idea of, of saying certain words in a certain way, okay, at a certain time, uh, brings um, extraordinary things into your life, makes things happen. That was their, their sorcery belief. And so maybe they, uh, most likely they thought, well, if you just, we, can just, we can just say these words, these incantations that Paul's saying, that that same thing can happen uh, to us. But of course that's not true. It's not true. And Jesus and, and the, the scriptures constantly tell us uh, not to get stuck on mere words. Words are important and using the words that Jesus uses uh, is important. Titles that he uses are important. But of course true religion of Jesus goes much deeper than, than words. Luke 6.46 Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord? And what's the rest of that? And do not the things that I say. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? When Jesus sent a message, was it to Sardis, Revelation 3, verse 1 and 2? I believe, I believe that's right. Uh, he says, you have a name that lives, uh, but really uh, you're dead. Spiritually you're dead, yeah. Revelation 3, verse 1. I know your works. You have a name that lives, Jesus said to the church of Sardis, but you are, you're dead. You're dead. They weren't completing their faith. They weren't following through on, on their promises there in Sardis. So, notice these guys stepping forward and wanting to duplicate what Paul was doing by merely saying, the words I could call these, they're, they're witnessing to the fact that these were authentic miracles of being done. Now the next section, chapter 19, verses 15 and 16. And this is, um, this is simply, their, their plans backfire on them. Their, their little scheme backfires. Because these seven sons of Sceva, they step forward and they actually find somebody possessed with a demon. And they begin to say, you know, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, you come out of there. And then the demon speaks to them. How creepy that, that would be, wouldn't it? The demon speaks to them. What does the demon say? Yeah. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? In other words, straightforward, the demon says, you, 
Who in the world are you? I have no idea who you are. But I know Jesus and I know Paul. Now, the scholars tell us that the word no for Jesus here and the word no for Paul are different. The word no for Jesus here is, is a word that means recognizing someone's ultimate authority. But the word no that's used with Paul here from the demon is just to be acquainted with somebody. And so we have relationships that way in normal life. There are people that we really do know and recognize who they are and what they stand for. And there's other people that we're just simply, yeah, I know, I know who you're talking about, type of acquaintance. You know. And so it seems that the demon is making the distinction between the two. Paul being the lesser and Jesus, of course, being the greater, the greater one. But still, notice... The, Between the three. Okay. Yeah. The sons of Sceva. Yeah, that's a good point. Throw that in there too. The demons making a distinction between, you know, the, the all three, Paul, Jesus, and these these fakers here, uh, the sons of Sceva. That's good. Yeah, they would have been well known to be the, the sons of a, of a high priest. They would have been known to that community for sure. And the demon says, I don't know you. I don't know you. Okay. So notice what the demon says. This is kind of backfiring on the sons of Sceva here. But then it really backfires because what does the demon do? Or the person who's possessed with the demon, what does he do here? What is your... What? Now, there's several little words here. Leap, what else? Leaped, overcome, Prevail. prevailed. Okay. They ran out of the house naked. And then they ran out of the house naked and wounded. Wounded. If you look up that word wounded, it, it is the word that we use now, uh, trauma. Traumatized. These men were traumatized. Okay. And the Greek letters transliterate over to, and it just spells out in English, trauma. Traumatizo or something. Trauma. Okay. These men were traumatized, and I guess they were. Think about that. You're, sitting, you're, you're talking to this demon, all of a sudden he leaps on you. He masters you. He overcomes you. He prevails. He strips your clothes off. And he wounds you. We don't know how, but it causes you uh, to get your britches out of there. Demon possession in the Old Testament. The witch of Endor is there in 1 Samuel 28. Um, who else has a thought on that?
Yeah, the, the witch of Endor was just as surprised to hear um, that voice from the dead as anybody there. That's a good. That's a good thought. Um, James is saying over in First Samuel sixteen, I think it is, where an evil spirit is comes upon Saul, King Saul. Okay. Um, but he also added that that seems to be something that um, either comes from God or Saul, in response to God, develops that evil spirit within himself. So, but it seems like uh, Brother Paul, like Brent was saying, demon possession was peculiar to the time of Christ uh, to show that Jesus has the power over Satan and to confirm the words and similarly uh, in the book of Acts. Real, real interesting. Notice that here with these uh, sons of Sceva that that seven men were no match for one demon. I've often wondered just how powerful these demons were. But if you look over to Mark chapter 5 right quick, you might recall Jesus, he had some encounters, didn't he? If you look at Mark 5, Jesus said to the unclean spirit, Mark 5 verse 8, well, Mark 5, verse, uh, verse 8. He said unto him, Come forth, thou unclean spirit, out of the man. And he asked him, What is thy name? And he said unto him, My name is Legion, for we are many. So many demons were no match for Jesus the Lord, but one demon uh, took care of these seven sons of Sceva. Very interesting thought on demons. So we see here that um, their their plan backfired on them. Verses 15 and 16. And then notice from verses 17 to 20 of um, Acts chapter 19. That this caused the word of God to just prevail. It caused a great response to the gospel. I think uh, verse 17 there says that the name of Jesus was magnified, glorified. That's what happens when the gospel is received. The name of Jesus is magnified. Notice in the next couple of verses there that many believed. And, uh, that is, became, they became Christians. And many of the Christians confessed and declared their deeds. Right. Uh, it takes Christians sometimes a while to break from their past. So Paul being there not only helped people to become Christians, but he also helped Christians to realize that they had not been as holy and as forthcoming with their lives before the Lord as they should be. So they came confessing, confessing, and declaring their deeds that they had been wrong. 
So wonder why that is that, that we have trouble breaking from our past or breaking from our old habits. Oftentimes Paul in his writings would say, you were once darkness. To remind them, you were once darkness. But now you're a light in the world. I think that even comes from Ephesians 5. But um, So Paul and his preaching helps them to break from uh, their past. But also, what else do they do here as they come and they're confessing, declaring their deeds? What, what's the next thing they do? They burned these magic books. Must have been quite a few of them. They they own these books, and they bring them, and they burn them on their own. The price of these books being burned was collected to be about how much? 50,000 pieces of silver. From what I read, that translates to, to U.S. dollars of being about $35,000. Sometimes repentance is expensive, isn't it? It is. Sometimes, many times, repentance bring, ought to bring a tremendous change in our lives. Tremendous change. You might have... a. This might be an example. You might have someone who makes good money at being a bartender but is exposed to the gospel. That repentance that is declared, brought upon him and his soul might be expensive. He would need to leave that job. Start all over somehow. But his conviction toward Jesus would make it worth everything. Notice that the name of Jesus is magnified. The people believe and many of the Christians confess, declare their deeds, burn their magical books. You can just imagine all these scrolls that had, that had all these incantations written in them and, and they had been holding on to them, using them, keeping them in their family trunk or closet. And, and so they said, enough of this, enough of this. They came out and burned them, and then the Word of God just continued to prevail. Now, the question that I want to leave us with, does hell know your name? Jesus I know. Paul I know. But who are you? Do you think it's... Good idea that hell knows who you are. What made it the case that these demons knew Paul but didn't know the sons of Sceva? Wasn't it the case that Paul was intruding in on the, the kingdom of Satan where Paul used to make havoc of the faith of Jesus Christ? He's now making havoc through his preaching, he's making havoc of the kingdom of Satan. Oh yes, all hell knows the name of Paul, the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus. We know him. But it comes to me, does, does hell know about David Barker? Does 
Is hell, do, do that, are the demons able, do they know my name? Do they know who I am? Do they know what I'm doing? Are they threatened? Is Satan threatened by me? And if not, why not? You got 30 seconds. <laughs> this is I know it's weird. But so the, the demons, you're saying they knew who Jesus was, or that demon, or all the demons, and Paul. So is it like they're di- discussing this stuff, you know, like, you know, this is Paul, you know, you guys, you got to watch out for. Yeah, I think they are. I think they are discussing this. They're saying, "What can we do about Paul? What can we, what what can we do to stop uh, this gospel?" Every time we do something, every time we get persecution going, it just continues to grow with nothing stopping these guys. They won't stop. We throw them in prison; they're still speaking the gospel. Now we can't stop them. If we put one in prison, another takes the word and goes with it. You know. Yeah, I think that definitely they know what's going on. Yeah, good point. There's no way the demons working in there wouldn't absolutely know what was going on if we think of it from a human point of view. Yeah. So how do these how do these beings communicate? There's some type of omniscience there that one knows they all know. We don't understand how they communicate. No, we don't. Just based on human communication, there's no way they could not have Say it last part again. What? Say it last part again. Just based on the way humans communicate, alright? If we lived in that area, there's no way we wouldn't have heard about this. If, if, if we expect that the angels and the demons communicate the same way, simply as we did, there's no way they could not have known who Paul was. Yeah. We have to assume that they communicate on a higher plane than we do. And another thing is that this conversation with this demon was spread forth in all this area. Okay. So the word spread fast about what this demon said. And so yeah. Uh, Yeah, Miss Kay, I, I was turning over a minute ago, Miss Kay was bringing up this passage in James 2, verse 19. Um, as James encourages us to have an obedient faith, faith and works, he said, Thou believest there is one God, that God is one, thou doest well, the demons also believe and tremble. James 2, 19. The demons believe and shudder, this person said. Shudder. Good question, Paul. And, uh, but I think they they know who is uh, who's for Satan and who's against him. They definitely know, and they, they yeah. If you got somebody who is really making inroads with the gospel, they're going to try to put a stop to him 